are they real COVID deaths or are they um, just some that maybe someone had COPD but they tested post positive, so all of a sudden it's a COVID death? You, you think there's no COVID virus? COVID virus? Yeah. You think it doesn't exist? Well, it exists in the sense that they made it up. All these PCR tests, that's all gorgeous. Like, there's so when, much. When you say they made it up, who's You they? are a journalist. Can yeah, you yeah. please do okay, some I'll research? Just uh, part of the exchange that was Global News reporter Paul Johnson speaking to people at the rally yesterday. There were two anti-mask protests held on the weekend. So we thought it would be a good time to get in touch with Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also an infectious disease expert. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, great to be joining you. Uh, It's got to be frustrating to you, or maybe that's not the right word, but something when you see anti-mask protests and people saying things like, they think this is made up? Well, yes. I mean, honestly, I I kind of expect that. We see it with all sorts of different types of public health uh, uh, mitigation factors. Vaccination, we hear about the people who are hesitant or anti-vaccine. Masks, essentially, are falling into the same category. I mean, even the idea of seatbelts. There are still people who believe that seatbelts are completely unnecessary because I never get into an accident. Why should I wear one? So at the end of the day, you always expect a certain pop, uh, percentage of the population to be anti what you're doing. Um, some people have put it at around 20%, given it sort of names like cynicals and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, you just kind of have to realize we have to work around these people so that we can maintain, um, you know, the efficiency of whatever technique we're using to be able to minimize spread. Uh, There was a diagram that was put out last week, I think. It might be older than that. I first saw it last week or saw people commenting on it last week called the Swiss cheese effect. And it was (laughs) the six slices that it looked like of Swiss cheese to show the different levels uh, of protection. And and as you can imagine, uh, some people were making fun saying, oh, all I need is six slices of cheese and that Mm -hmm. keeps me protected. But it was to show how obviously the holes in some, not everything is 100%. Do you think messaging like that helps get the, helps clarify for people why certain things like masks and distancing and such all work together? Yeah, I mean, I know that people are always constantly trying to come up with something new. Um, and, and unfortunately, they'll come up with an idea that sounds really good in the be- in the boardroom <laughs> when you're brainstorming. And then you put it out there and you kind of scratch your head going, oh, yeah, maybe that wasn't the brightest idea. I mean, Swiss cheese, yeah, a lot of people are going to find that amusing and everything like that. Um, I, I tend to use language that's a little bit more um, human. Uh, you know, we've talked about it in the past. I talk about the ABCs of being able to prevent COVID um, and You know, other people are going to have what we call a chain of transmission and breaking the chain. There's all sorts of different types of messaging that's out there. I think what's important for people to understand is that when you are dealing with any kind of virus, especially a respiratory virus, that you're going to have a number of different options to be able to help protect yourself. And if you incorporate them all, then you're going to have that nice 100% or close to 100% protection. But then it's just a measure of you know, risk assessment as to how many of those you really need at any given time. Just like going out in cold weather. I mean, if we all of a sudden wore every single layer and it was only zero outside, we'd be like dying a sweat in no time. (laughs) 
<laughs> very, very true. Um, we're, we seem to be getting more questions lately about numbers, which I think is completely understandable. People mm-hmm. are getting tired. We're seeing numbers in other provinces shoot back up if we're looking at Ontario and yeah. Quebec. But a lot of the questions focus on breaking down the numbers. And I tend to agree in that it doesn't really mean much if we just give the number of new infections. If we're not talking mm-hmm. about testing numbers, if we're not talking about percentages mm-hmm. and the infection rate. Yeah, and I think the people who are listening need to understand that there's one very, very important factor at this moment, and that happens to be the age groups of the cases themselves. And the reason for that is for the last month or so, um, pretty much all over Canada and you know, in many other parts of the world, we've been seeing a rise in cases. Now, a lot of people have said it's a wave. Some people have said it's a surge. The reason that we know know what it is happens to be the age groups. If it's all isolated to one age group, say the 20 to 40, then it's really essentially um, compartmentalized into one isolated demographic. That's a surge. That's not a wave. However, if all of a sudden it disperses, and we actually use that word, disperses from one particular age group into others, and usually there's like a difference of about 30 years between the ones that are currently having a problem and the other age groups, then what ends up happening is the uh, number of cases go up in those other age group categories. And if it starts to level off, and instead of looking like a hump, it literally looks like a straight line, that's when you're into a wave. So that's really the most important thing right now is what are the ages of the people who are getting the majority of infections? And are we starting to see rises in the other age groups? If we are, we're in trouble. If we're not, it means that we're doing what we need to. And the people who are essentially going to these rallies and everything are fitting mainly within that small isolated compartment of age groups. Because we talk about the R number too, don't we? And that that's how many other people are getting infected by each case. Yeah. And I mean, the R number is really, really really great in order to get a feel for how uh, the dynamics of spread are and how we can use um, the Swiss cheeses to uh, be able to reduce that. But when it comes to where we are right now in October, that is far less of a concern than finding out whether or not we're going to start seeing all the age groups start to go up. And this is partly due to that idea of, you know, protecting. And and Dr. Henry brought this in many, many months ago. Remember, we were only testing the most um, likely cases as opposed to everybody. Well, that was sort of the issue was to see if we could identify what age groups were primarily leading to the spread. And could we prevent that from getting into other age groups? Now, a lot of people will say, oh, well, that's just protecting the elderly or protecting the young. Mm, Not really. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect everybody. But if we are going to have an echo chamber of transmission of people who just simply don't care and and going to rallies, well, then keep them separated from the rest of us so that we're all safe. My guest is Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also an infectious disease expert. Today, we are talking about the spread of COVID-19. This after two anti-mask protests were held over the weekend in Vancouver. A lot of people saying they don't believe the numbers. They don't think it's as big of a deal as it is being made out to be. Some write out saying that they don't believe that the virus is even real. So we thought we would bring Jason back and talk a little bit more about where we are as far as testing and infection rates. We've also opened up the phone lines, star 9898 and 604-280-9898. Let's go to Bill on the open line. Good afternoon. Hi there. Thanks for taking the call. Um, With our our infection rate, they say that the R rate is at one or below one. 
I don't understand how that's possible when our numbers keep going up. I mean, if your reinfection rate is one, that would mean your numbers should never really be going up. All right, Bill, thanks for that. Jason, what do you say to that? Well, again, when we talk about the R number, then what we essentially are doing is we're talking about the uh, dynamics of spread, and that's going to go up and down depending on uh, where, where you are in sort of the temporals. And if you're using all sorts of protections, then you are going to start to drop the R number. So in that context, I think it gives you an opportunity to understand how to prevent spread But when you're dealing with more of a population or a community, you really want to be looking at that dispersion because now we're in a situation where we can't just protect one age group or another age group. We have to make sure that the people who are doing all the spread are kept away from the rest of us. All right. Uh, thanks for the call. And, and Jason, I think, too, in uh, furthering to what Bill was saying there, I think when we see things like there was a, a meat plant that was announced, I think, late Friday, mm-hmm. that 13 people in the plant had tested positive for the virus. That's where that question gets asked. Well, one person had to have brought it in, you would think. I guess it's possible more than one. But how did it then lead to 13 people getting the virus? Well, when you look at it from that perspective, then you have to start looking at the virus itself and how it's capable of moving around in an environment. And I used to do this type of work all the time. And when you're in an environment that is cool, especially one kept below about 10 degrees Celsius, those virus dynamics are going to be so much more um, capable of spreading from one person to another. Another thing is that if these droplets get onto surfaces, whether it's from people sneezing, coughing, or their hands. And remember, when it's cold, you're going to be dripping a lot more than you would if it's warm outside. Those surfaces themselves are going to be able to harbor the virus even better. So any place that is refrigerated and happens to be wet on a regular basis is going to be a much greater place for the spread. And that's where, again, where it's sort of that R value can come in, because then you have to start identifying, well, what areas can we start... um, reducing the chances. And again, gloves, masks, and proper hygiene is probably the best way to approach this. It's just when you're working on an assembly line, um, it's almost impossible to be able to adhere to all of those things and still, you know, get your job done. So it's very, very difficult. All right. Let's uh, go to Bob on the, or sorry, Doug, Doug on the open line. What is your question? Yes. uh, I was uh, just in the Vancouver General Hospital there and thousands of people in there, of course, at one time, uh, tight quarters, really. And uh, I'd say probably 95% of the people that uh, are, are coming in off the street have masks on. But the strange thing I saw was barely any of the hospital staff are wearing masks. And I'm just, uh, it just blows me away that we're telling everyone to wear masks in one of the most dangerous spots that we could be in a packed hospital the people that are employed by the government are not wearing masks. All right, Doug, thanks for that. And, and Jason, this isn't, we've had other people wondering too, because there's not that mandatory mask policy in some hospitals. So what, is, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, I would be wearing a mask if I was in a hospital because of the risk. Um, there probably are areas where having a mask may not be as necessary, especially if they have a really good testing system in place. But if you happen to be in an open area where you can be coming into contact with people from the public um, or even visitors and patients, 
you really should be working on making sure that you've got that PPE in place. So um, I'm, to me, I'm a little bit shocked that I'm hearing that somebody who's just going into the hospital, who's just a regular member of the public, can see this happening. Um, and so it would be very interesting to find out what the, um, uh, what the rules or, or regulations happen to be when it comes to being in these premises. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little shocked. All right. Uh, Lydia is on the line. Lydia, what are your uh, comments or question? Uh, well, it's really surrounding food. Um, we have decided that we're going to try to go back out into the world after this, after this eight-month stint and, you know, try to live normal lives. So we went out to a restaurant yesterday, uh, like a fast food restaurant, um, had previously gone to one the day before. Everybody was wearing masks from the cash people at the cash register all the way to the cooks in the back. But yesterday when we went, the cashier was was not wearing one. Completely different restaurant, mind you. Um, the cashier was not wearing one, but there was a shield. But then we look back and the cooks aren't wearing masks. So my husband said, well, should you not be wearing a mask? And the person said, well, it's not required. I'm not required to wear a mask if I don't feel like it. Now, my concern is if you're handling people's food that they're ingesting, it would almost be like an automatic. Like if, if retail stores aren't letting you into their locations without wearing a mask, shouldn't the people preparing your food be wearing masks? So I just want to know what the regulations are surrounding things like that. Like it just seems like common sense to me. Yeah. Jason, what do you think about uh, people who are preparing food, not wearing masks? I mean, if you happen to be cooking it, and then after it's cooked, it's going into um, either directly to the consumer, uh, like a patron at a restaurant, or it's immediately getting wrapped up. So it's going to be what we call ready-to-eat food. Um, once it's all said and done, it's, it shouldn't be that big of a problem. You should still be wearing a mask while you're actually doing the final preparation stages. But if you're talking about, you know, putting together a salad or, or maybe a Subway, uh, um, you know, submarine sandwich or something along those lines, the mask really should be on for the whole period of time. Now, granted, is COVID going to be more dangerous than, say, a foodborne infection that you should be preventing anyways? Probably not. But if you hear someone essentially saying, well, I don't feel like wearing a mask, then they might be actually fitting into that 20% that I was talking about. And you may just maybe not want to give them your business until this is all over. All right. Thanks for the questions. Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time. Sorry that we didn't get to everybody on the open line. Jason Tetro, great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jason is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also an infectious disease expert. A lot of people are wondering what is going to be happening with parking in Vancouver, talking specifically about parking for veterans, people with veterans license plates, having free parking, not only leading up to Remembrance Day, but year-round. And joining me to talk about where things stand right now is Sarah Kirby-Young, who is an NPA Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, There seems to be some confusion as to what was put to staff to look at, what staff came back with, who's in favour of this, who's not. So can you clarify what's happening with parking for veterans? Uh, Sure. Um, What happened is there was a motion brought forward last year by Councillor Melissa DiGenova, and that was to look at um, the exploring what the process could look like for how we could extend free year-round parking to veterans in the city of Vancouver and to build upon the one week of free parking that was given to veterans um, during Remembrance Week from November 4th to 11th. And so staff was asked to look at that, but what did they come back with? 
Well, it, it was really curious because um, the report that came back, um, it's interesting, actually recommended reducing um, the existing benefit of the one week of parking for Veterans Week um, to one day. Um, and then also acknowledging uh, D-Day and BME Day, but that would be three individual days through the year. Um, and it did not inc- follow the staff direction, um, or the direction to staff, I should say, to actually provide a process for how a, a year free year-end parking program would work. In fact, it recommended against extending any free parking. Uh, is that common that staff are asked to look at something and then come back with a report that looks at something different? Uh, it's it's not. Um, typically, when the mayor and council give direction, um, that's you know the role that council plays in terms of setting policy and then... It's the job of the professional staff to execute that and come back um, to to meet that direction that has been given. So this is, in my mind, this is a very unusual approach. Uh, What were the reasons given from staff to not only reduce the week of free parking, but to also and then to not look at the year-round parking free as well? Uh, They cited factors such as cost um, or trying to meet the climate emergency goals of the city. But I think fundamentally, the spirit of this motion, which was unanimously supported by council, was to honour veterans and people that are willing to sacrifice their lives for their country. Um, And and I think that spirit was very clear um, um, and very intentional. So it's a bit of a loss to see why we have this report back that takes a different direction. It seems like this was one of the few cases where council agreed on something. Uh, we did. <laughs> I, th- I think we all agreed and recognized that you know our, our veterans deserve to be honored. And um, if they're lucky enough to make it back and some don't, um, I think that we should give them every possible thanks that we can for standing up and making that sacrifice. And as far as you know, then, has anyone changed their mind about this on council? Um, I haven't spoken to all of the other councillors. Um, I know that uh, in chatting with the number that I've spoken to, everybody, uh, and those the ones that I have talked to, um, are very committed to the spirit of this motion and to honouring our veterans and what they have done for us. And, and they, in fact, they stood up and were prepared to make that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, is it a is it a cost issue then as far as or, or does the staff report take a look at how much the city I, I guess is losing in park parking revenue because of this or or would lose with a program like this? Yeah, there there are some references to cost. Um, I, I think there'll be a good discussion at council and asking questions. One um, statement in the report says, for example, it thinks it would need two full time staff to administer this program. I'm, not sure why that is. I'm very unclear about that. Um, if somebody has a veteran's plate, it's pretty easy to see. Um, that's a pretty straightforward way to identify somebody um, and not issue a ticket to them if they're uh, parked at a city meter. So not clear and not understanding why that would incur such a uh, such a staffing resource and such a cost to do that. Because we're not talking about a huge number of people. Uh, we, we are not. And I, I believe that we have a gentleman from the Veterans Association coming to speak to council and he'll be able to talk to that in more detail. Um, and uh, give us some numbers on, I think it's a fairly stringent process around applying for a veteran's plate. Um, but, I mean, really, you can't put a price on on sort of the commitment and sacrifice that these people have made for us. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was the line that I also found a bit strange when it said that it would take two full-time staff people to administer this. When we have a city where in all of the neighbourhoods where there's paid parking or where parking is at a premium, residents get a decal or have the option of buying a decal that they put on their windshield and they park with that decal, you would think even if the licence plate wasn't enough and maybe not every veteran has a veteran licence plate – that system of decals already exists, and how difficult would it be to have a veteran's decal? 
Um, I don't think it would be particularly difficult to do that. And, and, you know, that program, like you say, is already staffed. So you would think that could be absorbed into existing operations. Um, but I think it could be even simpler and just utilize the program through ICBC that uh, has veterans plates. It's a very recognizable, easy way to identify people. And so when we do have enforcement um, staff that are out there ticketing, they just simply wouldn't ticket somebody that has that plate on their car. Councillor, just uh, before I I let you go on this, I wanted to ask you, so council is going to be talking about this, uh, talking about parking for veterans uh, on Thursday. Uh, Is it something that council can do as far as this report came back, didn't really look at what staff were directed for? Can you send staff back and say, this isn't what we were looking for? Here's what we want you to do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, council always has that opportunity um, during a council meeting to reject the recommendations or to uh, make amendments and put its own recommendations uh, forward and vote on them right in the meeting at that time. Uh, and what about the optics of this coming at the same time? Uh, Global News also uh, reported on some managers getting merit-based pay raises. Here we have the city uh, that's been asking for bailouts from other levels of government, saying that especially with this pandemic, there's no money. Uh, they're they're raising salaries for managers and at the same time trying to take away parking from veterans. Yeah, the optics are appalling. I spoke with Jordan Armstrong um, from Global on Friday night um, about the pay raises that um, went out, and I mean, I think that that's that's another huge issue um, to have these coming on the heels of each other um, and be putting in an average of 4.8 percent merit increases at the same time we're you know suggesting that we cut benefits um, for veterans who have been willing to give their lives for the country it makes no sense to me. But I think on the uh, on on the bigger piece around sort of just the lack of confidence that I think people are feeling um, with the fact that the mayor is just not having staff adhere to direction that is being given by council and i would we were laid off 1800 staff we had our exempt staff on a furlough program where they were getting paid 10 percent less they were working 10 percent less i would rather see people brought back to work to their full-time salaries um, and do that first i'd also like to see us deal with the 2021 budget first which we know is going to be incredibly challenging to make work given the pandemic and the time that we're in before we increase our baseline costs for next year All right, uh, Councillor, I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Have a good afternoon. You too. That is Sarah Kirby-Young, NPA Vancouver City Councillor. Well, if you have spent any time driving, we know that during the pandemic, at least in the beginning, a few months ago, there was a noticeable decline in the number of cars on the roads. And uh, people were commenting on the... uh, Well, the more space on the roads and the fact that you could drive and not really have to deal with rush hour. But a new survey takes a look at blunders when it comes to driving. Although I find that blunder isn't a strong enough word. We're talking about things like running through stop signs and changing lanes without signaling. One of my biggest pet peeves when people turn right from the middle lane you're supposed to turn from the curb lane. So over at Research Co., Mario Canseco, who is the president of that company, put the question out to people, what do you think about drivers? Are they better or worse than they were, say, five years ago? The results, well, they might surprise you. And Mario is with us now to run through some of the answers. So good to have you back on the show. It's my pleasure, Jill. Great to be here. I thought for sure people would say that they are seeing worse driving. I've seen worse driving. Every day I'm on the road as either a driver or a pedestrian. I swear I see people running stop signs, not signaling, doing all of these things that you asked people about. Well, what's really fascinating about the numbers this year is there is a drop 
in the level of bad behaviors that Canadians are observing on the roads. Uh, there's also more of us who believe that the situation is roughly the same or better as it was five years ago. But it doesn't mean that we should all get uh, a nice reward at the end of the day because we continue to see a high incidence of things that we shouldn't be seeing. And, you know, even though it's a start and it's a nice trend that it looks to be going in the right direction, uh, this isn't anything to be proud of. <laughs> uh, so you were asked me, this was an online study from September 18th to the 20th. What specifically did you ask people? Well, we wanted to ask them just uh, at the start, you know, would you say drivers in your city or town are better, the same or worse than five years ago? And what's interesting is now we see a drop. Uh, last year, 47% of Canadians said that drivers in their city or town were worse than five years ago. This time around, it's 39%. So it's an eight-point difference from what we saw. And it has a lot to do with a couple of factors. One of them is definitely that we're not driving as much as we used to. Uh, The pandemic has made a lot of people work from home, uh, more kids uh, who are not being driven to school. That might play a role in the way we look at things. But there's also a little bit of a reduction in some of the bad behaviors that we see sometimes in Canada's roads, and that uh, definitely plays a role in the way that uh, respondents are looking at this and believing that we're on the right track. Hmm. Uh, So break it down by age, if you can, because people in different age groups had very different opinions on this. (laughs) Well, once again, it's a great time to be a Generation Xer. Uh, We're not being blamed by many when it comes to driving, and we do see an attitude that is remarkably different from younger and older drivers. If you're aged 18 to 34, uh, only 20% in this group believe that driving has become worse over the past five years. Those who are aged 55 and over, half of them, 50%, say that driving has become worse over the past five years. So the more experienced Canadians, so to speak, are, are the ones who are looking at the Canada's roads and, and essentially not being thrilled. <laughs> Uh, so walk through then as, as well. You take a look at six various things that we see happening on the roads. Uh, the first one is not signaling before turning. Yes. Uh, British Columbia, we need to have a conversation about this. Uh, <laughs> we are number one in the country at 61% of us who saw somebody over the past month who did not signal before turning. The Canadian average is 54%, lowest in Ontario at 49 Uh, This might sound like a huge number, but when we asked this question two years ago, the number in British Columbia was 75%. So even though it's three out of five of us who saw something that should not be happening and something that could get us to flunk our driving test if we were taking it tomorrow, uh, it's still a smaller number than it was back in 2018. So cautiously optimistic on this one. (laughs) So that's signaling or sorry, not signaling before turning. What about parking? Parking is an issue. 44% of Canadians who say that they saw a car taking up two or more spots in a parking lot. British Columbia, roughly the same as the national average at 46%. It climbs in Alberta to 50% and in Saskatchewan and Manitoba to 53%. It might be the size of the trucks or that they're not parking them properly. Interesting uh, when it comes to parking. Um, the failing to stop. And this, I see this, I, I think I see this every day. People, especially at four-way stop signs. So we're talking intersections. Uh, I'm not the only one that's witnessing this. No, and the numbers are quite astonishing where you're looking at BC. There's 36% of Canadians who remember somebody who did not stop at an intersection. Uh, but the numbers climbed to 48% in British Columbia. So almost half of us 
very small numbers everywhere else in the country. 42% in Atlantic Canada, only 32% in Ontario. So uh, along with not signaling before turning, this is the one thing that is making British Columbia be on a class of its own. Now, that being said, when we asked this two years ago, it was closer to 60%. So it's a trend in the right direction, but we continue to see this bad behavior in BC's roads. And interesting that as well. And when you're breaking it down province by province and, and BC, like you say, is a kind of leading in these areas, not where we want to be leading or be number one. Is there a province that, that people appear to be driving much better and there, there aren't as many complaints? The, the numbers are better in Ontario this year, which is quite interesting. A couple of years ago, it was Quebec and Atlantic Canada that were leading the way as far as having the lower scores on these questions. Now it's Ontario, uh, 49% are not signaling before turning, 54% is the national average. So very odd to see Ontario so low compared to the national average, which really means that it's the Western provinces that are having a tougher time dealing with all of these things, uh, whether it's parking in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, stopping at intersections or signaling before turning in BC. Hmm. Uh, what about uh, who Who do people blame the most? I know you said it was good to be Generation X. They're not being blamed <laughs> as much, but it seems a bit extreme as to, and also I, I, people, you kind of have to take a leap. If you see a car, it's not as if you know exactly how old the driver is. No, I think what we see here is a situation Uh, where you gravitate towards the first thing that you notice. When I first asked this question about 10 years ago, we still were in the middle of a gender war. You had male drivers who were complaining about female drivers, female drivers who were complaining about male drivers. It wasn't related to age. It was more about gender. Now it has changed dramatically. There's 56% of Canadians who say there are specific groups of people in my city or town who are worse drivers than others. And when we ask them, well, who is it? 43% say it's the young drivers and 25% say it's the elderly drivers. So once again, a generational war when it comes to that. Maybe somebody caught you off and you caught up with them a couple of blocks down. The one thing you remember is their age. You don't remember the color of the car or exactly what happened. It's an age thing. All right. Interesting findings for sure. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you too, Jill. Thank you. All right. That is Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co. And talking about the latest survey, once again, asking Canadian drivers, what do you see happening on the roads? Right now, we are going to check in with a UBC professor who has been looking at housing in the various platforms, the New Democrats, the Liberals and the Greens, as we are getting closer and closer to Election Day. And that professor is joining me on the line right now. Nathaniel Louster is an associate professor of sociology at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, you are the author of the, the Death and Life of the Single Family House, Lessons from Vancouver on Building a Livable City. You've also been looking at all of the platforms in the election so far, taking a look at what the different parties are promising and saying about housing. Uh, let's go through a few of the things that you've pointed out and you've written about as well. Uh, what sticks out for you as far as what promises we're getting from uh, the NDP, the Liberals and the Greens? Well, one thing that jumps out at me is actually how detailed they are. All of them are actually uh, sort of pushing forward some interesting housing proposals. And there's a lot of good ideas in each platform, which is kind of exciting. And uh, it's almost 
maybe says something about fighting the issue of the last election, uh, they've sort of come to realize that this is going to be a really important uh, issue, and they've pushed it forward for this election as well. Um, but you can break it down into a variety of different areas. Uh, one thing that they start with in the case of several platforms is COVID relief, of course. And uh, you do see some variations in terms of how uh, different parties are hoping to uh, provide more COVID relief. The BCNDP, for instance, uh, really promised to keep their rent freeze in place until the end of 2021. Um, the BC Liberals are very oriented towards tax breaks that they think might uh, help people um, who are homeowners uh, keep their homes through COVID. Um, and the BC Greens are working on it. Uh, they're the ones that have had the least time, perhaps, to really develop their platform since, of course, they're uh, kicking off this campaign right after their leadership convention. Um, and then you jump to issues like taxation. And, uh, of course, uh, taxes have been very big on the agenda of all parties in recent history. Um, but one thing the BC NDP is putting forward is this idea of a renter's rebate, uh, which, of course, they tried to put forward in their last uh, election, um, but the Greens prevented. Uh, the renter's rebate is basically just something to uh, um, supplement what's already given out for the homeowner's grant in terms of relief from property taxes. So this is a, an attempt to put forward $400 that comes back to renters. Uh, the B.C. Liberals have, of course, pushed forward the idea that they'll drop the speculation and vacancy tax, um, and they'll add a new condo flipping tax, which seems to be a capital gains tax. And, of course, Canada is quite unusual in terms of not having any capital gains taxation applied to principal residents. Um, and then raise a property tax on non-Canadian residents. Um, and then there's some changes to their uh, um, taxation policies for rental buildings that the BC Liberals have also proposed. And finally, we get the BC Greens, who are hoping to close loopholes uh, in the speculation and vacancy tax. Uh, it's not entirely clear uh, what loopholes they're talking about, um, and of course there aren't very many houses taxed through that tax, but, uh, but they are at least proposing something that, that comes down to taxation. And do any of those stick out to you as, uh, and you kind of touched on this, but as being problematic or others that might be easier to actually administer and see some kind of positive change or some impact from that? Oh, I've got lots of opinions about what's problematic, but what's great. Um, but, I, but I do think that, that it's pretty exciting that everybody's putting forward at least something uh, in terms of different ideas. Uh, you see the same kind of thing with respect to strata insurance, um, that you've got uh, a backup public option being forwarded by the BC NDP to deal with rising insurance costs for stratas. The BC Liberals actually push a sort of re relaxation of the statutory requirements for insurance. And the BC Greens are trying to push at least a panel to control the costs uh, of, of these rising costs for insurance. Um, everybody's got a social housing plan. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is everybody's put forward um, some ideas about uh, the limited supply we have on offer in the province. So this is an area that all the parties have committed to at least attacking in some way. How do we get more different kinds of housing and make it more available to people? Um, so it's kind of neat to see everybody sort of gathering around at least some common causes of, uh, of, of different ways to really promote better housing for people. Uh, you've written as well uh, a bit about uh, the idea of mix and match, which which not a huge surprise that you might not find everything you want from one particular party, but if you could take pieces from each of them, you might come up with a strategy that could work. 
Absolutely, and I kind of hope that they uh, they do work together as they move forward. No matter who wins, that they actually do build on each other's really good ideas because there's a lot here uh, to like about the different ideas that people are putting forward. Does anything stick out to you as something that doesn't work? Uh, like I said, I don't see a whole lot of room for uh, uh, closing the uh, loopholes and the speculation and vacancy tax. There's just not a lot there, but you can check out the loopholes to see what's uh, currently out there in terms of what's allowed for exemptions. Um, I would be a little concerned about dropping that tax entirely. I, I don't yet know the details on the BC Liberals' plan for uh, uh, the new taxes that they propose on condo flipping um, and how they would be looking at raising the property tax and non-Canadian residents. I think that this, in terms of the social housing commitments, there's also been some concern, although the BC Liberals have put forward a more detailed plan for um, boosting BC housing's funding. Uh, it's not clear that that is actually going to be um, added on top of the BC NDP's current long-term homes for BC plan, or whether or not that's going to replace it and hence take away that existing funding. So that would be a real concern in terms of some of those uh, uh, social housing commitments that we're seeing um, in terms of just making sure that we're actually adding to the, the very real need there. Right, because oftentimes when we're talking about social housing as well, when we're talking about different levels of government, we have it at a civic level saying we need support from the provincial government. So we hear that we also need support from the federal governments. They need to get back into the game of co-op housing, of nonprofit housing. There seems to be a lot of passing the buck whenever we're talking about actually building more of this supply. Absolutely. And we also see a lot of numbers often get thrown out, and this is a real concern, right, that it's not always clear that the numbers that get thrown out in the uh, uh, election season, uh, what those numbers are referring to, whether or not they're actually additions, whether or not they're things that are already underway, whether or not they're actually cutbacks. So those are the kind of details that it's really good to actually have a, have a close-grained view of what these platforms contain that we just don't see yet um, for especially the BC Liberals and the Greens. Uh, the NDP, of course, has the Homes for BC plan already out, so it's a little bit more easier to actually see what that plan contains. And as we see neighborhoods change, I mean, people talk about density a lot, about the need to have different types of housing. Do you think we're making enough progress or at least having that as part of the conversation enough right now? You know, I think it's definitely part of the conversation. And like I said, I think I'm really pleased to see that showing up in each of these major party platforms. Um, I think the B.C. Liberals probably have the longest list of ideas for how to improve that uh, in terms of especially reforming municipal uh, powers and municipal planning uh, process. Uh, but the B.C. NDP also has some great ideas in terms of eliminating parking minimums near transit um, uh, and streamlining permitting processes. So you actually see it coming from both of those parties. And over over on the BC Green side, um, they actually have some really good ideas for some of the things the BC Nonprofit Housing Association has long pushed for, including trying to set up capital a capital fund to acquire old rental buildings, which would be fabulous. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks for having me on. That is Nathaniel Louster, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of British Columbia talking about the various housing platforms in the uh, platforms put forward by the parties in BC. 
This will be the last year where fireworks in Vancouver will be legal. They will soon be banned. That coming into play on November 1st, and not just for the year, for the future. And our show contributor, John Jang, is joining us now, and he is talking to two guests who have a lot of opinions about that. Good afternoon, Jill. This will be the last Halloween in Vancouver where the sale and the use of fireworks will be legal. Starting November 1st of this year, the city will introduce an outright ban, and those caught not obeying the rules could face a $1,000 fine. So to talk about that ban and the nature of fireworks, I'm now joined by Perry Logan. He's the executive director of the Canadian National Fireworks Association, and Suki Paul, the owner of Fatboy Fireworks. Suki, I'll start with you. What is your response when you hear this upcoming ban and how that obviously impacts a business like yours? Uh, in Vancouver, there's been a very negative stigma from the last 10 years with fireworks. And basically, we've been limited to just sell for Halloween. So it's very hard to say, but, you know, it, I've been fighting this for 20 years. I, but uh, it is just black and white. They just basically just want it their way, and that's it. And Perry, for the National Fireworks Association, what is your position when you hear about cities banning fireworks like Vancouver is going to be doing in just a few weeks? Um, simply, it doesn't work. It hasn't been proven to work anywhere. Like, that's not my opinion. That's just sort of a fact. I, mean, I live in a community that they're banned, and there's hundreds of thousands of dollars sold here every year. What the CNFA supports, and we're working with, we're working with a lot of communities in Alberta, because we're on station right now, is we work on a safety program similar to the liquor program where everybody selling in, in the industry has to be certified and trained. Put some of the responsibility back onto the industry because, you know, 80% of the industry, 70% of the fireworks that are sold are sold online. I'm not sure how a ban will stop that. The real question is how do they enforce the ban? That's what we try to get through to them. The enforcement of this rule will be the thing to watch because personally, you know, I feel like it's going to be a lot like jaywalking. I mean, you're not supposed to do it. It is technically illegal, but it happens every day and it doesn't become a problem until, well, it becomes a problem. Fireworks have been banned in Surrey for the last 15 years. And if you go out on Halloween night or if you go on, out on Dolly night, there's not, a, like, there's not an area that fireworks are not being blown off those two nights. Like, they basically, once they do have something enforced, like this bylaw, they refuse to enforce it. Like, they, so, they, don't, have a, they don't have a plan to enforce it, I guess. No, they don't have a plan to enforce it. I've seen this the last 15 years in Surrey. Perry, since this will be the last Halloween where fireworks are still legal in Vancouver, are we expecting, like, a surge in sales and the usage of fireworks to go up as people give it that one final hurrah, so to speak? Um, I don't know because of the bans coming up because COVID, people are tired of being inside. I know on Canada, consumer fireworks sales were way up. Um, and we don't have scientific proof to verify that, but it's, it's common sense. Uh, you know, people want to be entertained. They don't want to be dictated anymore. But the truth of the matter is, they'd be curious next Halloween how many fireworks go off in, Va- in Vancouver. You know, it just simply doesn't work because, A, people don't want to follow the bylaw, or B, they don't even understand it. You know, our, our goal is to, the 95% of the population are higher, that wants to do things properly, want to get educated, and that's our role. We want to have, offer that education and certification so people that are starting out with fireworks, have never used them before, or have been long-time users, have the ability to use them safely. Um, again, the ban in Vancouver, 
it's not really a bank. You can go across the water to North Valley and you can buy them. They'll be legal there. You can go south, you can go east, you can go west, and you can buy them. I mean, there's a challenge with them even enforcing the ban or controlling the sales because it's such a big industry. So we've chosen to just be the voice, take responsibility. Like in Alberta, we've changed four communities in the last six months that had bans or were considering bans, and now we work with them. And we educate the people that are selling. We have processes in place to protect the city better than, I'm not going to say better than the fire department can because it's not a competition, but we're willing to take on that role where they don't have the resources to do it. In conversation with Perry Logan, the executive director of the Canadian National Fireworks Association, and also with Suki Paul, the owner of Fatboy Fireworks. And Suki, you mentioned that you sell fireworks in Toronto. There is no ban there. And from your perspective, there are no problems there. And when it comes to the kind of customers that you deal with, it's not just, you know, young adults. You often get grown-ups, uh, parents, adults who are looking to celebrate safely. Yeah, like I said, I would say 95% of my customers for Halloween are all families that come in and have their yearly block parties. And they enjoy themselves. And then it just takes the one idiot to screw it up for everybody. You know, there is something to keep in mind that when fireworks are done right with adult supervision, with somebody that obviously knows how to handle those devices, it can be joyous. You know, I've seen it used in, you know, concerts. I've seen them used in big festivals. Like, fireworks done right does put on a show that's really hard to compare. Absolutely. I mean, fireworks are the most regulated industry in our country. They're regulated more than guns, alcohol, all the way down the loop. And... You know, we're talking an industry that sells two to three hundred million dollars a year in Canada, and there hasn't been a death knock in Canada in twenty years. You know, there hasn't been a house burned down in Alberta in fifteen years. But we keep being made out as this bad guy, and if you use fireworks incorrectly, they can be dangerous. Absolutely, and that's where the education comes in. I mean, again, most people want to use them correctly and do use them correctly, but going back to the ban. I just would like the fire chief or the mayor or city council to tell me how they're going to enforce it. Because when I was on Vancouver last year, there was fireworks going off every night before Halloween. And I met with Councillor Fry and I asked him, how do you plan on stopping that? He just looked at me and said, I don't have a clue. You know, because they don't. They they tried it in so many cities. And like Edmonton, they've written a new bylaw that's actually made it easier because, one, there's no issues. There hasn't been no injuries or, or any bad incidents in years and years. And it is such a celebratory thing that, uh, the mental process and thought process on this is changing. Like it's really switching in Alberta. Like it's, uh, we've opened up almost 80% of the province to make fireworks legal now. It's a very good point. And I guess more than anything, what we're taking away from this conversation is that this ban on fireworks might be more symbolic in nature as opposed to it being a realistic achievement. They're never going to achieve it. I don't mean that. Like just, I, again, I live in a community in Alberta, ironically, that is totally banned. And where I'm sitting right now, I watched 11 consumer fireworks shows on July 1st, four more on July 4th, and a few more. And I, there's no peace off. There's no reason for them to come. They're a couple minutes long. They're with families. People are doing it correctly. You know, I mean, there hasn't been. A, there's been one ticket issued in Airdrie, where I live. That was in 2004. Yet it's an industry that sells millions of dollars. That I'm not going to say it's going to jumpstart the community, the economy, but. Uh, there's a lot of money in it. There's a reason Suki has 30 stores. It's a good industry. It's a safe industry. But it's going to be done properly, and that's the role that we've taken on. You know, we've set up an education program that everybody, if we get our way, and the federal government's working with us on this, that have every, every again, every user, every service retailer has to be certified. And that way there we know the people selling them are educated properly. 
Fair enough. Well, I appreciate you both giving us some time here today. That is Perry Logan, Executive Director of the Canadian National Fireworks Association, and Suki Paul, the owner of Fat Boy Fireworks, that fireworks ban for Vancouver, of course, coming into effect on November 1st. And my thanks to show contributor John Jang.